Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, The Authority of the King, looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, with Dr. Newfeld giving us a message entitled, Following the King. Let's join him now. When the American Civil War was first declared, both sides, the North and the South, had no difficulty finding volunteers. Everyone thought victory would be easy, that the price to pay would be a small thing. Young men volunteered by the thousands. Historians tell us that so great was the mass of young men, both sides had difficulty finding enough uniforms, guns, and even food to feed the overwhelming crowds of young men all wanting glory. Little did they know that within four years, 600,000 of them would be dead, to say nothing of the wounded and permanently disfigured. At the beginning, they knew nothing about the cost of war. They only thought of the glory of war. How appalling. I think this is exactly what it was like at the time of Jesus. Matthew tells us he was quickly launched into an incredible popularity. His sermons and his miracles drew crowds no one had ever seen before. Everywhere he went, he attracted the masses, and everywhere, people were starting to whisper, is this the Messiah? Is this the great king we were expecting to usher in the end of the age? They were anticipating the great victory of God's kingdom. Roman rule would end. God's people would win. Evil, suffering, death, and sorrow, this was all to be vanquished. And just like the American Civil War, people were ready to sign on. Now, before we dive right into our Bible, let's just ask a question. Is that still a problem today? See, what I mean is, is this a problem among would-be followers of Jesus? Are we expecting only blessings and glory, and are we unprepared for the cost of following Jesus? J.C. Ryle, the, the first Anglican bishop of Liverpool, who lived in the 1800s, said the following, Nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession. See, I wonder, is there harm in filling the ranks with people who don't understand the cost of discipleship? Is there a problem of giving invitations to come to Jesus without telling people that they must confess their sins and pick up their cross and lose all things for the sake of Christ? You know, some time ago, a pastor of a very large church in Southern California, 20,000 people, told his church, if you want to remain a passive Christian, go find another church. Another large church I heard about mailed out letters to everyone who had been there for 10 years and had never gotten involved and told them to please leave. They were taking up seats and preventing those who needed to hear from getting in. And meanwhile, they were doing nothing with the gospel. Please find another church, the letter said. Must have been a very shocking letter to receive indeed. So, wow, is that a good thing to say? Should churches say to people, unless you're serious, get lost? Well, no, I don't think it's a good thing to say, but I would not offer baptism and church membership to those who did not know the cost of following Jesus. And I would not call anyone saved who did not understand the need to abandon everything to follow Christ. So I'm reading Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Before we look at the details, let me remind you of what I've already said in our study of Matthew. I have said that Matthew, as he shares the life of Jesus with us, the real events of what Jesus did and said, Matthew's not giving us a chronological timeline of Jesus' life. Rather, he is putting the events together in a topical format. Matthew believes one can group a series of events in the life of Jesus into a series of headings, and when you group them together in this way, it will cause you to think more deeply about what the advent of Jesus actually means. And so in Matthew chapter 8 to 10, Matthew has presented us with three outstanding miracles done by Jesus. The first was the healing of a leper, then the healing of a servant of a Roman centurion, and then a glorious night of healing that happened one evening in the village of Capernaum. Then following this, Matthew presents us with an event. Among would-be followers of Jesus, people who are so overwhelmed with what he's been doing, they wish to follow him. See, I can only imagine how often that must have happened. Seeing the power and authority of Jesus must have inspired a great many people to want to be a part of that amazing event. Well, today's passage, as it is described, probably happened late in Jesus' second year of ministry when he was on the way to Jerusalem to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. This event happened at a point in time when Jesus was getting popular, especially because of his miracles, and that's bringing the most unexpected people into his camp. That's because everyone jumps on the bandwagon of a winner. And clearly, he was a winner. And so people want to become his disciples. And just so we understand, all of the famous rabbis in Jesus' day had a group of disciples. And so it's not unusual for students to apply to a noteworthy rabbi looking for acceptance. The first of these to apply is a scribe. Scribes were an elite group in Israel. They were trained in reading and writing and in transcribing scripture. Now, I think we often miss how important the role of a scribe was to ancient Israel. I mean, think about a world in which there's no printing press, and the only way to get a book was if a scribe actually produced one for you, a book that would take a great deal of time to duplicate. Scribes are then chosen to write very well. I mean, handwriting was an art to be learned. They were to be accurate, making sure that every page they duplicated had the exact number of lines and characters as the copy they were translating. In ancient Israel, the accuracy of scribes was legendary. This was a very exact science. But their role also extended into teaching and interpreting Scripture. And so they became a part of the elite religious and political leadership in Israel. If you want to get a sense of the authority of scribes, think about the Old Testament character Ezra. Ezra is not only a scribe, he becomes the most powerful religious teacher in Israel during his time. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, scribes at the time of Jesus were officials at all levels of government. It's probably correct to say that these scribes were well-respected academic authorities who had spent a lifetime in the scripture. 
They were often the kind of people who would even advise the chief priests in Israel and often held official positions of teaching the faith in Israel. So it's no small thing to say that a scribe watching the healing ministry of Jesus wanted to follow him. You know, it's a credit to Jesus, one might think, to have people of this academic standing applying to his rabbinic school. Jesus was clearly attracting some of the best intellectuals in his culture. Now, what adds to the importance of this moment is that from the New Testament, we learn that as a whole, the scribes were immensely hostile to Jesus. And so to have one of their number convert, well, sounds like success. But Jesus saw it differently. Look again at verse 19. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. What this scribe is asking is completely in line with expectations of that day. You see, in Jesus' day, a potential disciple would ask to enroll in the school of a master teacher. In other words, you didn't apply to a school, you applied to a teacher. Then the student would follow the teacher and memorize his teaching and imitate his teaching and agree to later teach what his master taught him. The more brilliant the teacher, the greater were the chances of the success of the student. See, after trained by a popular master, the disciple would enjoy much of the status of their teacher, for they would forever be identified with him. That would be roughly equivalent of someone in our day having a PhD from Oxford or from Cambridge. I mean, you know that beats a PhD from McGill or McMaster or Queens in Canada. And that's why Jesus answers the way that he does. If you think there's status here, then know this. I don't even have a permanent place to lay my head. The status that you're seeking is not here. That gives pause for thought. How can there be no status in being a student of the man who's ushering in the kingdom of God into the world? And the answer is not that there is no status. That is, if you consider status from the perspective of human values, there's none here. Luke, in Luke 16, verse 15, records Jesus as saying, What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Or John 5:44, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And that's it. If you want positions of honor in the eyes of people, Jesus has absolutely nothing to offer. Have you made plans to join us April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the next Israel experience? Maybe you're holding back and we understand, so we've made it easier to register and easy to be refunded if for some reason we're unable to travel. So don't hesitate, register before the limited space is sold out. Join Dr. John Newfeld, Alathagain's Phil Calloway, recently confirmed musical artist Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, and David walked. Visit the Jordan River, David's royal palace, sail the Sea of Galilee, commune at the Garden Tomb. While the full Israel itinerary is now available, so for more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. There's no earthly honor in following Jesus. The honor is before God. The honor 
is in the kingdom to come. The honor is in believing that the smile of God is worth infinitely more than the smiles of our world and of this culture. When the scribes sought to follow Jesus, Jesus immediately saw through the problem, and he sees through our problem as well. Let me get practical. You know, when I was young, a Canadian by the name of Pierre Burton had written a book entitled The Comfortable Pew. I need to hasten to add that book speaks of a time in Canada that simply doesn't exist today. There was a time in this country that if you wanted political office or business contacts or respectability, you made sure you showed up in church. Of those days, might I say, I'm glad those days are gone. Following Jesus was never supposed to give you those things. And that seems to be the trouble with our scribe. He wanted status, and Jesus was offering none. Next, Matthew tells of another would-be follower. In his case, he makes no request. The second disciple had none of the problems of the first one. He is no status seeker. Given that he doesn't ask to follow Jesus, I've got to assume that he has been challenged to already be a follower of Jesus. He wants that, and he sees what the first guy doesn't see. He does see conflict. So look again at verses 21 and 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. You know, at first reading, that does seem harsh, doesn't it? Is Jesus saying to him, you can't even go and make funeral arrangements for your dad. Well, two explanations of this account have been given by various Bible teachers. The first, that the father was not actually dead. Now, those who argue this scenario point out that in Jewish culture, a funeral was held within hours of the death of a loved one. Burial was immediate. If the father has in fact died, so the argument goes, this man would not be standing there talking to Jesus. What he really wanted, say these Bible teachers, is to take care of his aging father, and then, only after the obligation was completed, was he ready to become a follower. Now, that process might take years, and so, at least so this argument goes, this man is saying, I'll be your follower when the other matters in my life make it convenient to be so. Now, by the way, I've met people like that either their job or their family their, or their financial status, it's not what they want it to be. So they make no commitments to Christ until this is the case. Now, that may well be the case here. We just can't say for sure. You see, other Bible teachers believe that the father indeed had died. In fact, his death had coincided with the invitation to follow Jesus. And in that case, at least, this is how these Bible teachers treat this passage. Jesus is simply using what is called rabbinic exaggeration in order to make his point. So, for instance, you'll remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, Jesus says, you know, if your right hand or your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off or gouge it out. Now, he didn't mean it literally, but he was using an effective teaching technique in order to say, go to any extreme to keep yourself free from sin. I mean, that's called rabbinic exaggeration. It doesn't mean that anyone hearing this kind of teaching actually believed it was to be taken literally. Rather, it's a teaching device in that culture in which you deliberately overstate the case in order to make a point. So then, these Bible teachers argue Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's using exaggeration to tell this man that he was to have no higher obligation than following him. 
You don't take time off from discipleship. I'm more important than your father. Well, how do we understand this passage? Well, interestingly enough, Matthew gives us no more than the basic conversation. So I guess we're left to wonder what exactly was the situation that gave rise to the conversation? Well, we're simply not told. But no matter how you understand this event, either the dad was still alive or he had just died, the point is actually the same. When you list your priorities, Jesus says, I come out first. In contrast to the rabbis of Jesus' day, who taught that your responsibilities to the dead actually exceed all other responsibilities, Jesus will have none of that. But Jesus actually says, I exceed all other responsibilities, nothing. Whether it be your parents, your spouse, your children, your job, your hobbies, or your affections can either be more important than I or the demands I make on your life. Your first obligation, if you're my disciple, will be to me. So after having showed us some of the miracles of Jesus and his ability to instantly heal anyone he wants to, Matthew takes us to the accounts of those would-be followers of Jesus. He wants us to know what it costs to follow the great king. And there are two things he wants to show us. The first is that we must not expect earthly advantage in following him, although there are great eternal advantages. To those in the word faith movement who who promises riches and wealth in this life when we follow Jesus, well, Jesus adamantly denies this is the case. There are no this world advantages in being his disciple. And second, We must expect that Jesus' demands on our lives take priority over every other earthly commitment we have. If the government makes a demand that runs contrary to the demand of Jesus, the answer to government is respectfully no. If your husband or wife or your family demands that which contradicts Jesus, our loyalty is to him. And that takes some time to digest. Take the first item. Do you expect your faith will give you advantage in this life? See, the apostle Paul didn't. He said, if Christ has not been raised, meaning if this stuff isn't true, then I am of all men most to be pitied. In other words, we must expect that following Jesus is going to make our life in this world harder and not easier. How about you? Do you understand that? And are you counting on that? Can you give illustrations of that in your life? And now consider the second item, that of priorities. You know, I expect there are some of you listening that have just never considered this. If it's a choice between sports or church for your kids, how you choose shows your priorities. Does soccer or violin lessons beat Jesus? Or is it the other way around? And are you teaching your kids with the greatest of care what ultimately matters? Or let's use another example. See, each week, Multiple items demand your attention. Among those many things include studying scripture, going to the movies, prayer, your job, serving others in Jesus' name, cleaning your house, sharing your faith, watching television. See, here's the question. Which will you sacrifice for and which will you not? See, I'm just saying what's obvious. Jesus turned some would-be disciples away on the grounds that they falsely expected earthly advantage in following him or on the ground that something other than him would demand first priority in their lives. He is either first or you can't have him at all. Why? 
Well, he's the king, and kings make demands. See, I know there are some listening to me right now. You call yourself a Christian, a disciple, and yet you're living in known sin with no thought of repenting. You are right now committing adultery. You are right now involved in unethical business practices. You are right now living a life geared for your own advantage or your own pleasure. You are living this way and calling yourself a follower of Jesus, and you're not alarmed for your soul at all. You're telling yourself, all is well, after all. You believe in God and in Jesus. You occasionally go to church, and you want me to encourage you so that you can still pursue your dreams and your chosen lifestyle. You want God to bless you and what you're planning, rather than to have the king tell you what he's planning for you and demanding your allegiance to his plans. Some of you have no place in your heart for Christ's words in Matthew 7, 23. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from you, worker of lawlessness. So I want to make a confession. The reason I'm speaking this way is not because I want to exercise power over you or tell you what for. I don't want that. I'm far more selfish than that. I don't want to go to eternity and have you look at me on the day you were rejected for your lawlessness and hear you tell me, why didn't you warn me? So here's the warning. If you want to follow Jesus, Lay aside your hope of this world. If you want to follow Jesus, you must call him Lord, meaning he takes priority over everything. And if you can't do that small thing, let's not confuse matters by pretending to call him Lord at all. Wow. You'll either bow your fierce pride and your own expectations to him, or you're not his follower. We're not talking about perfection, but an attitude of the heart. Either surrender to him, or you're simply not his, That's how Jesus wanted it. John, what a great and timely message for me. I got to tell you, uh, recently I heard a pastor speaking on a passage in Galatians 2.20, and it said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My concern was the only thing that was emphasized was the last six or seven words, what he did for me, but nothing about the crucifixion. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I I think if we teach this properly, we're going to say that living the crucified life is also something that Christ has given us. I mean, to do this is to be rescued from our hellish nature and to follow Christ. I mean, I think that's part of good news as well. Thanks so much, John. And don't forget to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The church was created to be God's instrument to declare the gospel to a fallen world. In Dr. Neufeld's series, Lessons for the Church, discover more about the purposes of the church and how God has equipped His church for service. Lessons for the Church is our free CD resource this month to encourage and equip God's people. Request your copy or listen online, podcast, or download the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. Making Bible teaching you can trust available is central to our mission, and it makes a difference. Rob wrote, Back to the Bible Canada has become even more of a blessing since I relocated. I have grown so much, and the ministry has been a lifeline during this time of transition. Thanks so much for your encouragement. As always, so grateful for your prayers and financial support that sustain this ministry. 
For more information or to request your free CD copy of Lessons for the Church, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.